Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin. Do you ever base your self-worth on your achievements at work or let yourself be defined by what you do? These career myths can keep you stuck and unhappy. It's time to take back control and strike a balance between work and life. Simone Stolzoff, author of The Good Enough Job, is here today, and he argues that we should stop trying to find a, quote, dream job and instead build a diversified career that allows you to live a more well-rounded life. Learn tips for reframing your work and how to build your own, quote, good enough job. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. From the moment we ask children what they want to be when they grow up, we exalt the dream job as if it were life's ultimate objective. Many entangle their identities with their jobs, with the predictable damage to happiness, well-being, and even professional success. The myth of the dream job is definitely something that we've covered a lot on this show and argued for why it's better to pursue the good enough job, another topic I'm really passionate about which is why I'm so excited to have journalist Simone Stolsoff on the show because he's answered my nagging by writing a book called The Good Enough Job. Simone, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so thrilled that you wrote this book. But first, let's start with a little background about where you first decided to think about like good enough jobs and learn this concept, because I feel like this is a concept you usually have to learn by trial and error, probably. Yeah, very much so. I have had a very meandering career. I spent my 20s sort of playing Goldilocks with different industries. I worked in tech and I worked in food and I worked in design and I worked in journalism, um, all the while trying to find sort of a vocational soulmate, if you will. And (laughs) yeah, there's sort of like two origins of the title. One is just my own experience as as a journalist covering the labor market and seeing how there is this growing idolization of work and people's careers. And the second, the good enough job is an allusion to this theory that was devised by this British pediatrician named Donald Winnicott in kind of the mid 20th century. And Winnicott was observing how there was this growing idolization of parenting and how these parents, particularly mothers, wanted to be the perfect mother. And they were trying to shield their kid from experiencing any negative emotions or harm. And then when the kid inevitably felt sad or frustrated or angry, the parent really internalized those emotions and and took it very personally. 
And so Winnicott advocated for this idea that he called good enough parenting or the good enough mother. And his thought was that by exalting sufficiency as opposed to perfection, it would benefit both the student, the child, and the parent. So the kid would learn how to self-soothe and take care of some of their own problems, and the parent wouldn't lose themselves in their kid's emotions. So I'm making a sort of similar argument about work and how we've really idolized work and much like a screaming toddler, a job is not always something that we can control. And therefore thinking about what a job can do to support our vision for a well-lived life is actually you know, better off than always trying to seek perfection. Yes. And I absolutely agree with all that. I also think that this perfect job, or as you and I like to say, the myth of the dream job is sort of new-ish, right? Like it's not like this, people weren't expecting so much from their jobs, you know, 30 years ago. And now we expect a job to really check all these boxes in our life. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we got stuck in the myth of the dream job? I know that workism is a whole like thing in there too. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's many different ways in, and maybe if your last name is Baker or Miller, you might've thought we have entwined identities with our, our work for, for centuries. But I do believe it is there's something distinct about the way, especially in America, we really look for these dream jobs. There's a few different ways to explain it. There are sort of economic reasons, there are political reasons, there are social reasons, historical reasons. The one I really focus on in the book is this sort of subjective value that Americans give to work. And especially with the fall of other sources of meaning and identity in people's lives in the last you know, few decades, things like community groups and neighborhood groups and organized religion, it becomes no wonder that so many people are looking for the belonging, the community, the purpose that they once had from different facets of their life in where they spend the majority of their time, which is the workplace. Absolutely. It's the dream job. I know in your book, you talk about how the word meaningful became like tenfold, like people used it way more in the last, I don't know, like 20 years to talk about work, like meaningful work. It was basically what you said is like in books, the word dream job and meaningful work got published like way more recently. Right. So this is also, I feel like to your point, like not only do people think a dream job exists, but we continue to make people believe that it exists based on, and I'm using like a collective we, because I think I think people have the sense that it exists out there. And if you don't find it, somehow you're doing something wrong and you're losing in this game of life because, you know, look at all these books that talk about finding your dream job and creating your dream job. So I I agree about this perfection versus good enough feeling of like it, it's it's just like a circular motion that you just get lost in and you never get out of. But I also feel like we've kind of created that too. Like why not want to have a dream job, right? Like if you could have that, why would you choose not to? Totally, yeah. I often think about sort of the happiness formula about expectations and reality. Yes. And I think part of it is just these sky high expectations that we have. You know, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with trying to align your work with your interests or trying to find meaning or community at work. Right. But the argument that I'm making is it's it's a very risky game if it's the sole source of meaning or identity in your life. And when you're looking for something to always be a dream, it creates a massive amount of space for disappointment underneath that. Yes. Okay. So how do we balance the pursuit of meaningful work with the risk of letting your job, you know, really 
literally eat and become who you are? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? And I don't yes, think yeah. there's like a single answer. I think it's a, an ongoing struggle. What I found is that as opposed to like actively saying, I don't want to care about my job or some of these trends that we're seeing around things like quiet quitting or people disengaging from the workplace. I don't think that's necessarily a formula for fulfillment either. And in my mind, the importance is that you have a diversified source of identity and meaning in your life. You know, much as an investor benefits from diversifying the yeah. stocks in their portfolio, when we have a diversified identity, some diversified sources of how we find meaning in our life, it's a much more resilient strategy. So as opposed to saying, okay, don't care about your job, I argue for just caring and investing your time and energy into things beyond your work as well. Yeah. Sort of reframing work as being a part of your life, not your entire life, right? Yeah, that's well said. As you know, this Small Business Month, we've teamed up with Adobe Express to bring you the tips and tricks to use today to elevate your business or brand. Our Small Business Tip of the Week is pay attention to the details to elevate your brand. Creative content that wows is more likely to increase likes, saves, shares, and purchases. And Adobe Express makes it easy to wow in all your marketing. Seriously, easy for any skill level. Adobe Express has thousands of free, beautiful templates for everything you need from designing your logo to creating that social content, flyers, invites, and more all in one place. So what details can make the difference? Well, animation can capture your audience's eye more than a static image. Adobe Express makes it simple to animate text of an image on your graphic so it stands out on the social feed. High-quality photos can take any marketing or social post to the next level and pop on the screen. Adobe Express comes loaded with thousands of professionally designed social media graphics, icons, and images you can drag and drop right into your design without the expensive photo shoot or trying to resize a photo or anything crazy like that. And finally, enhance your existing photos. Remove backgrounds with the tap of a finger so you can use just the product or the model you took a picture of, for example, and easily place it into a template or other background you choose from the stock library. Seriously, it is so simple and I really wish we had had this tool when we had first started with Career Contessa. It would have saved us hours. With Adobe Express, you can also choose fonts that reflect your brand's personality. With more than 18,000 licensed fonts, Adobe Express makes it simple to find the right topography for your brand. Whether you're a career-driven superstar, an entrepreneur, small business owner, or running a side hustle, start using all these easy tools on the details that make your brand stand out. You can all start creating today for free with Adobe Express, available on your favorite app stores. Plus, get more tips and tricks right now at adobe.com backslash express. Hey, Bestie, I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. We are the hosts of Creeps and Crimes podcast. Every Thursday, Morgan takes us on a deep dive into a paranormal case or a conspiracy theory. And Taylor will bring you a detailed and accurate reporting on a true crime case. Since we launched in 2020, we have never missed a Thursday. With over 160 episodes ready for you to binge, you will never run out of cases. And you can follow along on Instagram at Creeps and Crimes podcast. Whether you're in the car or enjoying a glass of wine, tune in every Thursday to Creeps and Crimes. What does it mean for a job to be good enough? Like, what's your definition of the good enough job? Yeah. So for me, a good enough job is a job that lets you be the person that you want to be. I know that's like sufficiently vague 
and subjective, but I think that's kind of the strength of the framework where you get to define what good enough means to you. So maybe it's a job that pays a certain wage. Maybe it's a job that has a certain title or is in a certain industry, or maybe it's a job that gets off at a certain hour so that you can pick up your kids from elementary school or play in your weekly recreational softball game, whatever it is, whatever your definition good enough is, I hope that you recognize when you have it. Because the alternative is that we are always just seeking for something that might be better out there. You know, I think there's a nice analogy to the, the to the dating world where if you're always looking for something that is a little bit better, a little bit, you know, hotter or smarter or more wealthy, it's a, a great way to feel perpetually let down. And I think similarly in our working lives, if you're able to think about, okay, how does my job support my life? How does my job contribute to me being the person in the world that I want to be and showing up in a way that I want to show up and my relationships and my parenting and my hobbies and all these different aspects of who we are, that is really what what work's role should be. It should be to support you as opposed yeah. to the other way around. I think people struggle with that sometimes because they, they don't know what the me part is. It's like, who am I without my work? My work is such a definition of who I am. I know I struggled with this. I was, so I was a recruiter at Hulu before, and I remember distinctly like at a, like a cocktail party or a wedding, people would ask me what I do and being able to say that was like, they knew what a recruiter was and they knew what Hulu was. And so it was like, bang, bang, impressive. The conversation, what, you know, you could almost see their faces light up like, okay, somehow you've been profiled is good enough to continue talking to. Right. And I talk about this a lot because it's so obvious to me now that my ego is very attached to those things. And it was a quote unquote dream job. But then when I left to do my own thing and it was like, people didn't totally understand like what is career contessa yet, you know, there was all this like ambiguity and it made me deeply uncomfortable, partially because I felt like I was like, either having to try to recreate a new identity or I had like lost my identity. And I think that can often happen to people with, you know, quote unquote dream jobs or these jobs too, is like, they're almost afraid to find a good enough job because it's like, okay, then I actually have to like, what else do I find meaningful in life if it's not my career? Right. It's like all these big things come with it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's so relatable. And I think there's such a strength in jobs that are legible to others, you know, a job that you can explain to your grandmother at Thanksgiving or to the spouse of a friend of yours. I think, you know, something that people really found out during the pandemic for a number of different reasons is the risk of just thinking that you are what you do. You know, obviously some people got laid off or, or furloughed, you know, if you are what you do and you lose that thing, then who are you? But I think everyone who was working in the past few years had to reconceive of their relationship to their work because the work itself changed. And so I think a lot of what we saw come out of the pandemic was people really reckoning with who they were when they weren't working. What happens when they don't have to be commuting for an hour or two every day? How are they going to fill that space in their life. And I think a lot of people developed a healthier relationship to work because of it. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate, like the pendulum is swinging. It feels like the other way now where now people are, you know, because of layoffs and fear, people are feeling like, okay, I have to go back to that, like diehard that I was with work before, but it's like really more of an economic situation, less of a, like, you know, 
just ditch who you are because that's what work is requiring of you. But it's like unfortunate that this is happening so drastic. Like you had such a drastic reality with COVID and now we're having this other drastic reality. Okay, so in the book, you tell a really good story of the advice that you got from, and you'll have to help me with the pronunciation of this name, Anis Mohani. Yeah, Anis Mojgani. Okay, so tell them the story because it's really good. Thanks. Yeah. So I was a 22-year-old. I was a poetry and economics student, which maybe tells you everything you need to know. You know, I had this like <laughs> yeah. tension between art and commerce in my life. And I had the opportunity to interview my favorite writer. He is this poet. He's actually the current poet laureate of the state of Oregon. And his name is Anis Mojgani. And he is a professional poet. He was like my idol. You know, he literally made money traveling around the world performing his his words. And so I wanted him to give me like a, a pep talk. You know, here I was like a poetry student about to embark on this unknown future. And so I asked him, you know, Anise, how do you how do you feel about the phrase, you know, do what you love and never work a day in your life? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, some people do what they love for work and other people do what they have to for work so they can do what they love when they're not working and neither is more noble. And I think that last part is key. You know, I think we live in a society that loves to revere people whose identities and their jobs neatly align. You know, the the painter or the astronaut or the, you know, social entrepreneur but here was, you know, my professional crush, a professional poet, no less, telling me that it's okay to have a day job, you know, and naturally being the naive 20 something that I was, I did not heed his advice. I spent the next <laughs> 10 plus years looking for that perfect dream job to help me self-actualize. But I think his wisdom is really, is really key. And I think that's what a lot of people have awoken to recently, which is, you know, sure, for some people they do what they love. And for some people, their job is more of a means to an end. They, they work to yeah. live and there's no, it's nothing to kind of bat an eye at. It's interesting too, because obviously when you asked them that advice, influencer and creator weren't really around. I saw a poll the other day and it was that more Gen Z, like Gen Z are aspiring to be influencers and creators. And I wonder what that means for us as a society when like, everybody feels like the dream is to work for themselves and to be this influencer versus like almost like to your point, it doesn't feel noble to go work for an organization. What are your thoughts on that? And like influencer and dream job, good enough job. How does that all intertwine? Yeah. I mean, I think we can both relate to this experience having worked in a more corporate setting and then gone on to work for ourselves. I don't think it necessarily gets much easier. You know, I think Yeah, it for, doesn't. <laughs> for, for me, like I one of the big things that I realized when I started working for myself is that I was my own worst manager. I like yeah. had very much like internalized all of the incentives of capitalism and the market and thought that on weeks where I hit my writing goal, I was a good person. And on weeks that I didn't hit my writing goal, I was a bad person. And the boundaries between kind of when I was on or off the clock began to become thinner and grayer. And it really took some work for me to think about, okay, even if I am a, a writer now, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an influencer, but like even as a, a self-employed person, I still need to conceive of this as a job and try and put some guardrails up 
between when I am doing my job and when I'm not doing my job. Because one yeah. of the the risks of current age that we live in is that our work is very leaky. You know, it's easy to switch back and forth between the workday and the non-workday or to swipe down at dinner and look at your work email. And especially when you have no kind of infrastructure around you from a company or a boss or a manager or a team, it becomes more incumbent on the individual to be able to set those boundaries themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. I think being my own boss is so much harder than working for an organization. And yet I can tell when people ask me, they're like, oh, you work for yourself. I can tell there's this like, like daydreamy thing about it, you know, this glamorization of working for yourself. But yes, I, so I I think it's, it's definitely interesting. As a podcast host, you might assume that I love listening to podcasts and I do a lot, which is why I can tell when a show is totally full of fluff versus something that's adding real value to my life and career. As a longtime subscriber of Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter, I was thrilled when she announced that she was turning her attention to the wild world of work in Crooked Media's Work Appropriate. Work Appropriate delivers humorous but practical workplace advice for a range of listener questions. Things like, how do I get my manager to stop texting me after hours? Or even like, how do I deal with meeting culture that makes you want to pull your hair out? But by far, my favorite episode was What Happened to My Ambition? because it really helped me make sense of my feelings toward ambition and how to appreciate a place of being content versus striving for more, more, and more. I literally sent the episode to all of my friends and coworkers because it's really that good. So far, I could say that about all of the episodes too. From confidence at work to managing up, I highly recommend Work Appropriate. Work and our feelings around work are super complicated. But Anne Helen Peterson and her expert guests offer unique perspectives and solutions for all of it. And for someone who's already in the career space to say that, I think it means a lot because some of these ideas and these unique solutions are things I haven't even thought of. So do yourself a favor and listen to Work Appropriate every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then DM me so that we can talk about it. Okay, so I want to talk about the myths that keep us chained to our jobs and sort of this unhealthy relationship with our jobs. What are some of these myths? Yeah. So the kind of form of the book is that each chapter tells a story of a different worker. So there is a Michelin star chef and there is a Wall Street banker and there is a software engineer at Google who lives in a van in the Google parking lot. And through each of their stories, I explore one of the common myths that we associate with the workplace. So for example, there is a chapter about a former advertising executive, and it's about the myth that the more hours we work necessarily translates into higher quality work. Or their chapter about the Wall Street Banker is the chapter about how we often think that like to be successful, it means to make a lot of money. When in fact, like success in life should have a much more broad definition beyond just our our status or our bank account. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of phrases that get thrown around about the working world that we just sort of 
take to at face value, you know, things like do what you love and never work a day in your life, or, you know, your workplace is your family. And what I was trying to do in the book is both through the power of narrative, but also through a lot of the, the research that has gone into the working world was to queer some of these ideas that we often hold to be true and say, okay, like, can a workplace be a family? Like, what does the research say about that? What is kind of familial workplaces teach us about what the pros and cons are of having those interpersonal relationships or communities localized in the office. And so each chapter has its own one. I'd be happy to to dive into any of them if there's one that particularly piques your interest. Well, I I mean, they all are interesting. And just to give people like a quick rundown, things about like some of these chapters is like the love of labor, which I remember during COVID, that was a big thing where it was like, wait, somehow we've been tricked. Like the biggest trick of all was that the employers taught us that like, we like, you know, you should dream of labor. And there's like that funny tweet in there. Another one is work is work hard, go home, which is obviously about, you know, the lie of like work hard, play hard, the status game. I do want to talk about working relationships because I find, at least in my research, I found that people who are the most fulfilled in work it usually centers around relationships. So can we talk a little bit about that? Like for someone who's like, okay, I'm I'm on board with this good enough job thing. Now, what is like the the steps or the prescription I need to take in my own life to to get this? Maybe you can start with some some ideas for them to, you know, maybe pursue and I would imagine relationships is going to be a big piece of that. Totally. Yeah, I think the the relationships thing is super nuanced, which is why I like it. It's not so black and white because yeah. on, on one hand, the research shows that people that have close relationships at work tend to stay at their jobs longer, be happier and more fulfilled. But there's sort of a, a dark side of that. And there was this great paper that was put out from this, these researchers at, at Wharton, Nancy Rothbard and Julie Pillimer. And basically, it was about friends without benefits and sort of the dark side of these workplace relationships. And what they found is that when you have a lot of close friends at work, it can come at the expense of company bottom line. On one hand, information tends to travel through sort of the the social networks of the organization as opposed to being more transparently shared with everyone. On another, you are more likely to just trust the opinion of a friend of yours as opposed to actually, you know, giving it some some rigor and some sound business analysis. And I think at a at a more fundamental level, if you are relying on your workplace to be your greatest source of of your social life, to be to be a hub of of so many of your relationships, that can be taken away. You know, um, you know, often there's this phrase, you know, like we're like a family here. And I I don't think that that's necessarily something we should aspire to. You know, most of the families I know are are pretty dysfunctional, but also there's like <laughs> uh, some fundamental differences between families and and businesses, you know, and, and yes. your families, the, the love is unconditional. And in the business, you know, at will employment is by definition conditional. And the more clear headed we can be about that, the better. Yeah. Well, and also you don't choose your family. You do choose your workplace. Your family is with you forever. Your workplace can fire you or lay you off or like any that. Yeah. So it is funny that we use these phrases where it's like, actually, this is nothing like that. And maybe you don't want it to be like that in 
I think in terms of building healthy relationships, that's a really good point too. There are workplaces out there where they're so relationship heavy that maybe people aren't being given the feedback that they actually need, not just to maybe it's tough feedback, but also you need feedback to grow in your career also. And like there, I've come across people before where they've been looking for a new job and they'll essentially tell me, I love everything about my job, but I almost need someone who's going to push me more. And I'm such good friends with my boss. So it's this flip side of like, my boss is great, but I almost need someone who will be more of a manager and less of a friend. And that's a, that's a tough distinction sometimes, especially when you hear about all these bad managers, you're like, well, I actually like my manager, but what, what else, you know? So I can see both sides of that. So I also want to talk about like, what do you see or what do you think can happen if we don't recenter our lives around something other than work? Like what did your research and by having these interviews with people who basically learned these tough, you know, work lessons or learned the lessons the tough way where they were like, Hey, I thought this thing would make me fulfilled and it didn't. What, what happens if we don't sort of lean into trying to be more than our jobs and our identities? Yeah, so I'll tell the story of the Wall Street banker because I think it's illustrative. This guy Kay, he he was it's maybe like the most cliche story in the book. He was the valedictorian of his high school and he went to an Ivy League college. And in college, he chose the most lucrative career, which was to work on Wall Street in you know the late 90s. And he worked very, very hard and kind of quickly rose up the ranks. He was one of the uh, youngest ever vice presidents at BlackRock, you know, the, the asset management firm where he worked. And, you know, by age 30, he was making seven figures and he owned his own apartment in New York City. But, you know, from the top of the org chart, he realized that, you know, at this perch, he didn't like the view. He was playing a game that he didn't actually want to win or and, you know, he would look up at the people that were even above him at the company and ask himself, do I do I want their life? And the answer was, was clearly no. And so the question is, like, how do so many of us find ourselves in, in this similar situation where we're climbing a career ladder that we don't actually want to be on? And I think the, the explanation from, you know, the end of the story, you know, you'll have to read the book, but basically he quits his job, <laughs> go, goes and does something very different. But the the balance here is how do we think about what the market values and what we value individually? Because I think there is risk on either end of the spectrum. On one end, you get a situation like Kay's where he was just making decisions based on what was prestigious or what other people valued or what would pay the most. And then realized, you know, he'd been running this rat race for so long and it didn't actually align with what he cared about. But on the other end of the spectrum, you get people that say, assume a lot of debt to go to graduate school, to pursue a degree that might not actually lead to job prospects on the other side, or someone who goes all in on art, but is so preoccupied with how they're going to pay rent that they can't actually focus on, you know, creating the art that they want to create. And so, you know, it might sound a little simplistic, but I think the key is to think about those two circles and as a Venn diagram, you know, like what the market values, what you value, and then try and pursue work at their intersection, because I think there's risk in going too far in either direction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I think that's a perfect way of describing it. 
Okay. So what's one thing that you hope the listeners are going to leave today besides ordering your book? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the sort of high level message is that on the other side of prioritizing work is prioritizing life. You know, right now we very much treat work as the central access around which the rest of our life orbits. You know, you kind of have the job and then you try and squeeze your life into the margins around it. And the case that I'm making is that when we make work so central to our lives, when we give it our best hours and our best energy, it comes at the expense of being able to give our energy and our time to other things that matter to us. You know, our identities are kind of like plants, you know, they need water and attention in order to grow. And so the way in my mind to diversify your identity, to find meaning and other things beyond your career is to actually do things other than work, you know, and I'm sure this is relatable. Like when I was like really in the throes of my corporate life, I would come home and I really only had the energy to maybe turn on Netflix and try and turn off my brain and then, you know, go to sleep and rinse and repeat. And, you know, the problem with that is it's just a, it's a narrow platform to balance on, you know, even if you don't get laid off or you don't get furloughed, we are so much more than just kind of bots to produce economic value for the market. We are siblings and we are neighbors and we are friends and we are parents and we are citizens. And each of these sides of ourselves necessitates attention. And so that's what I hope people take away is thinking about what is one thing that you can do in your life to invest in your non-work self, in a version of yourself that is not quantifiable or monetizable, but actually is just a different facet of who you are. I love that. And just so you guys know, I got a little sneak peek of the book. I love it. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's available today. Also, I think this is, I'm part of a book club and I'm going to make it when I get to pick the book club, which is in June, I'm going to pick it as the book because I feel like this is a really good conversation to have with other people. Cause sometimes I think when you first start this, like move away from that identity being work, work, work to like, what are my other things? It's kind of fun to talk about it with other people. What are their ideas? And I find that this is like a very good, like for me, like social group activity to talk about with friends. So just a a tip if anybody's looking for that idea too. So I'll put this, the book is called the good enough job. Yes. It's amazing. (laughs) And then where else can people follow your work and follow up with you? Yeah. I think the best place is just the good enough job.com there. You can order the book, learn more about it. You can find my socials and find different ways to connect. This is my first book. So it's very exciting to put it out in the world. I'm sort of following in Lauren's footsteps here and yeah, all the, the support would be very much appreciated. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for writing the book. We hope you write more. Um, So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Please don't forget to rate and review our show. It really, really helps us get discovered by news listeners. And be sure to order Simone's book, The Good Enough Job, via the link in our show notes. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.